Welcome everyone to the fifth of our ESG series. How can you ensure that social factors such as equality are fully embedded in your organization? Bruin has led a number of DNI initiatives focused on race and ethnicity, which as we know is a core element of the S within ESG. I'm extremely excited to have such a fantastic panel today and I'll introduce them to you in a minute. Uh, but before I do that, I'd like to hand over to my colleague, Sophia Dean, who manages recruitment in the investments and front office space. She's going to talk briefly through some of the things that our investment clients have been doing around race and ethnicity this year. So over to you, Sophia. Thank you, Georgie. And hello, everyone, and welcome. So we know that there's a lack of black representation across the board within investment management. It has been well publicized that there are only 13 black fund managers in the industry. However, it is lesser known that there is a lack of representation across all areas of investment management. So not just the roles that involve managing money. The Investment Association conducted a study in 2019 titled Black Voices, Building Black Representation in Investment Management. The report showed that of 3,755 investment management staff surveyed by the Diversity Project, only 2% were African or American backgrounds. This means that the problem exists in all functions, which include middle office operations and distribution. But today we like to focus on what we can do to bring about positive change within the broader financial services industry and investment industry. As a business, we've been really interested to find out what our clients have been doing to encourage a diverse and inclusive working culture. Bruin have contacted a range of clients across the asset management industry, speaking to larger global players, mid-sized firms and boutique institutions. The results. So we've taken a selection of different things our clients have been doing, but to summarize, it seems the biggest and most positive thing to hit our industry this year is the launch of 100 Black interns. And I'd really urge your organization to consider this if you haven't already. In addition to this, some other examples that we've seen a lot with our clients include CEO statements relating to their company's commitment to diversity. A number of firms have donated a vast amount to support racial justice in the community. The introduction of blind CVs within the recruitment process. Partnerships with social mobility programs such as Black Young Professionals and NEAT. And internal ethnicity work streams which encourage open and uncomfortable conversations on diversity within the workplace. Now, I'm proud to say that Bruin have been a true advocate in their work in diversity, winning the Recruitment Industries Tiara Award for the second year running, which is sponsored by Deloitte and winning the Best Recruitment Firm Women in Finance Award. We formed partnerships with programs such as Upreach, Migrant Leaders and Mission Include, all of whom are focused on combating the lack of diversity within corporates. And we have Elham Fardhad who joins us from Migrant Leaders today. We've been actively engaged in volunteering with local schools to help children from disadvantaged backgrounds with their career choices and preparation for interview. We have also been working, we also have, apologies, a working group focusing solely on ethnicity who meet weekly, and I'm proud to say both Georgina and I are part of that work stream. We want to see a marked change in black and minority ethnic representation within our client base. We want to be an active part of this change. So one of the things we're doing is measuring ethnicity data. We ask every single one of our candidates throughout the registration process to record ethnicity data so that we can assure that we are utilizing this data as effectively as possible for our clients. We also want to see greater black and minority ethnic, ethnic representation within our own business. And as part of our commitment to this, we've signed up to the Race at Work Charter and signed up to 10,000 black interns, which is industry agnostic. 
It's a start, but the recruitment industry as a whole still has a long way to go. We are fully aware of the role that we have to play as partners to companies in providing the best talent. We've been taking this time to educate ourselves first and foremost, in part by taking the time to read and reflect on some of the following resources. And feel free to have a read in your own time and we're happy to provide these resources after the call. Leaving you with one lasting quote, which I personally found quite impactful, as PRI's CEO Fiona Reynolds puts it, responsible investors must address systemic racism and inequality. This will be neither simple nor straightforward, but we cannot shy away from the challenge any longer. We find ourselves now at an intersection. This is the year for change and it's time to make some noise. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Sophia. And talking about making some noise, I'm delighted to welcome our panel and introduce them to you. In fact, we've been so overwhelmed with enthusiasm to speak on this topic that we actually have a panel lineup of six speakers today. So to kick off, we have Darren Johnson. Darren is Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer at Impacts Asset Management and a member of its Executive Committee. Darren is a prominent advocate of diversity and Black, Asian and minority ethnic issues across financial markets. He's one of the co-founders of Talk About Black and acts as an ambassador for Investment 2020. Catherine McDonald and Heidi Ridley are both co-founders of Radiant ESG, an advisory firm focused on DNI, ESG research, investment and advocacy. Heidi is on the advisory committee for the Berkeley Haas Center for Equity, Gender and Leadership. She's also a two-time finalist for the Women of the Year Award from Investment Week. Catherine was most recently Head of Sustainable Investing at Rosenberg Equities, overseeing ESG integration and leading their impact research effort. And she is a member of the Board of Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. Diana Glassman is a director at EOS Federated Hermes based in the US. EOS has 1.2 trillion US dollars in assets under management for 50 plus pension fund clients. Diana is helping to define their global approach to race, equity and inclusion engagement. Elham Fartad is the founder of CEO of the charity Migrant Leaders and is a member of multiple advisory boards. Migrant leaders support first and second generation migrants as well as disadvantaged youths to help them succeed in Britain. And finally, Jessica Rogers is an experienced CTI certified coach. She works with the executive coaching consultancy providing coaching and leadership program delivery. She has had regular appearances on BBC Oxford and BBC Five Live. So I'd like to kick off with Darren and I've got a couple of questions actually, but would like to start by talking about, talk about Black. Um, so Darren, I'm really interested to hear what role Talk About Black has played within financial services. Thank you. Um, yeah, delighted to be uh, speaking on here. Um, okay, so probably best to start with a, a bit of a background. So in early 2016, um, the, the Diversity Project was formed. Um, really, it was formed in London, in the UK, to uh, accelerate progress towards a more inclusive culture in the savings and investment industry. Um, with that formation, there were a number of work streams um, that were created, um, including gender all the way down to veterans. 
um, ethnicity um, stroke BAME was one of the work streams created. And I was asked to come onto that work stream um, by the uh, co-chairs of, of that work stream. Now, in coming onto the work stream, what we decided to do was look at BAME. And unfortunately, when you use language like BAME, you kind of combine everybody's underrepresentation in the same ball and assume they have the same weighting, which they don't. So um, in doing that work, what we found was um, when we looked at minority ethnic, we used a benchmark of, of um, uh, the UK population as well as London. And what we found when we did that work was that minority ethnic is there or thereabouts in terms of representation within our industry. Um, when we looked at um, Asian as well, we found that uh, quite similar there or thereabouts, still some work to do, but there or thereabouts uh, in the industry. Um, when we looked at black, what we found was black was uh, very much underrepresented. And when we kind of unpicked um, that a bit more, we found that where we found representation was really in the support areas. Nothing wrong with support areas at all. In fact, it's becoming more and more uh, prominent in businesses given um, the regulatory focus. However, what we found was on portfolio management and distribution and sales, there was hardly any representation at all. So what we did was we created um, a kind of analogy and we talked about a hose pipe and um, you know, a hose pipe helps the water to flow. And what we found, what we're trying to describe um, whereas kinks, we thought there are kinks in this hose pipe. So how do we, how do we unkink it? So we came up with kind of four kinks uh, to explain it. So very quickly, the kinks were um, pipeline, uh, how do we attract uh, black talent into our industry, uh, entry when, they, when, we, when we find the talent, um, how do we get them actually over the hurdle of entry, uh, progression, and also talking about black. Now to give you a little bit more detail on what we did, we, we kind of set up programs for each of those kinks. Um, so an example of the first kink pipeline, what we did there was we, um, we created an after school, after school program called CASP. Um, it stands for Catalyst After School Program, really aimed at secondary um, school children to educate them um, around asset management, you know, give them the tools and um, helping them uh, as well as importantly, um, giving them aspirations to enter our industry. And for me, uh, this is really important because representation matters. Uh, and if you can see it, you can be it, um, quite simply put. Um, also, it has a societal impact. It not only affects how people may see underrepresented groups, but it also affects how underrepresented groups see themselves. Um, so, for example, we go to speak in schools uh, and, and, other, and, and other areas. And as mentioned, I am also an ambassador for Investment 2020 as well, uh, where I go in, and speak in um, various schools and various um, settings to try and attract black and minority talent into the industry. The other kink entry, um, what we did for that is we host an annual student event with um, the City of London actually, that supports us in doing it, um, kind of trying to get um, black and minority talent uh, to meet the asset management industry, uh, to um, have opportunity to get one-to-one -one mentoring uh, with some senior people, in portfolio management, in distribution as well, and other areas. Of course, C-suite, which I did mention, is also a place where there's a lack of black talent. Um, progression, um, we, we, with progression, what we did with that was we set up mentoring circles where we got um, basically some senior black individuals in the industry to come and talk to um, people that have been in the industry maybe one to 10 years that aspire to, to move up the ranks as well. We also partnered with Investment 2020 to set up a, 
uh, a C-suite mentoring program where we have CEOs and CIOs mentoring um, uh, black talent that have aspirations to move to more C-level um, uh, opportunities. Um, and lastly, breaking the taboo, um, which is talking about black and talking about race. Um, it's kind of seen as a taboo subject, hopefully not so much because um, obviously a lot of people are doing work on this and, and given the events of this year, it's been very much talked about. Um, you know, where we, what we basically do is we have um, uh, round tables, we have panel discussions, uh, podcasts, etc., to start a conversation to discussing uh, black issues so that we can move beyond the conversation. And that probably leads on quite, quite nicely then to my next question, because I was going to ask what you think some of the best ways are that we can remove the kinks in the hose and encourage a more diverse workforce within this industry? Well, that's interesting. I think, um, you know, some of the things that we've been doing um, to try and um, talk about things. So uh, one of the things that we we have said is, look, um, diversity and inclusion should not be seen as a zero-sum game. Um, you know, it, it's not one faction wins and one faction loses. Um, the emphasis should really be on change, um, uh, really a kind of an enlarging of the pie, or, or basically maybe to better put it, we need to re-envision diversity and inclusion as a coming together, not merely as a letting in. Um, we also need to look at it as a business case uh, imperative. Um, you know, it's been well discussed um, uh, around uh, the benefits of diversity and inclusion for organisations. And also, I think um, you know, sometimes the way it's in, uh, approached in terms of diversity and inclusion, I actually think it should be inclusion and diversity because what happens is you you go out, you you get the talent into your organisation, but you don't have the apparatus to to include them in the organization. So what happens is you get higher attrition, people don't stay, they move on. So really um, one of the things is, is positioning that as inclusion, get your inclusion strategies right, and then work on your diversity. And that way it kind of comes together nicely. Great. And Heidi, given your strong focus on culture, I'm really interested to hear how you think culture can play a key role in achieving inclusion. Um, I absolutely think that having the right culture is really critical to workplace engagement, to uh, productivity, to employee retention. But I do think that creating a strong culture of inclusion, as Darren said, is, is the key lever to unlocking the true benefits of diversity, which is especially important when you're navigating changes that are coming from you know, an ever-evolving landscape. So your ability to tap into a broad range of viewpoints, of skill sets, of experiences and approaches could mean the difference between fighting for survival and thriving. And by the way, I think it's a continuous loop. So the better the culture and the firm's diversity profile, you know, the easier it is to attract and retain diverse talent and perpetuate that advantage. Um, you can't really benefit from diversity simply by hiring it in. You have to have a mechanism to draw it out. Uh, and I think Darren said it perfectly. To, I think to leverage the best of, of D and I, you have to put the I before, before the D. Um, you know, I think studies have sort of increasingly focused on the economic benefit of diversity lying in the ability to tap into varied perspectives, different points of view, to foster innovation, and importantly, to mitigate groupthink. And so for that benefit to materialize, you have to create an environment or a culture 
that is designed to be inclusive and where diverse perspectives are not only welcome, but sought out. So, um, you know, in other words, kind of soliciting and truly considering a broad range of contributions, including those views or opinions which may contradict your own. Uh, and I think to, to get to a position where you can do that, you know, authentically really requires understanding why diversity matters and what the benefits are and ensuring that everyone in the organization understands that it's a prerequisite to long-term success. Um, treating DNI as a business imperative and not an HR initiative. Uh, acknowledging that it's not straightforward. It takes work and it requires consistent tone from the top, but also really widespread buy-in from the broader organization. And, and frankly, because culture is, is really part of a live and dynamic ecosystem, it's really formed largely through unspoken behaviors and social patterns, you know, how a firm's culture and its views toward diversity and inclusion are, are evolving has to constantly be monitored and, and managed. And I think most importantly, man management leadership has to walk the talk. It's really incumbent upon the leadership of the firm to create and insist, frankly, on a culture of inclusion where diverse viewpoints are not only valued, but, but required. You know, there's a, um, a, a famous saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and I couldn't eat, agree more. You can have the best strategy to improve diversity, but if you don't have the right culture to build it and leverage it, it's just gonna be an uphill battle. Great, thank you. And Catherine, I think this uh, might be a good question for you, but I'm interested to hear what some of the dangers are of having a misaligned corporate culture to your investment process. Sure, so, so just sticking with diversity and inclusion as an example, you know, if there's a true belief and alignment among the senior staff, it's gonna be felt throughout the firm. And this is gonna come out loud and clear when talking to clients or customers or in our business consultants and other stakeholders, you know, people are very good at picking up on what is authentic and very good at noticing which behaviors are rewarded and which behaviors aren't. Um, it, in my mind, I think a core problem is that senior management often talks a really big game about diversity, but doesn't genuinely welcome dissent. Um, they want a bunch of yes men with no uh, conflict. And so no surprise that um, employees are gonna start modeling the type of group think that they see as being rewarded. And this is completely contrary, obviously, to what we desire when we talk about getting diversity um, within our organizations. Uh, I think another problem is that companies often set, you know, hiring ambitions for diverse talent and this kind of uh, get them in the door strategy, but in the absence of a culture of true inclusion, um, it's likely that the firm is going to struggle with retention, keeping people um, who are uh, excellent uh, candidates, you know, keeping them feeling engaged and, and uh, valued by the firm, or that the firm simply just won't draw the best out of their employees. And, you know, both of these things represent cost to the firm. So, the danger of misaligned corporate culture is that if you don't work hard to get these dimensions right, this true belief that diversity is valuable, and by that we mean that diversity is the uh, remedy to groupthink, um, the tone from, a from the top and the alignment within the organization, uh, a culture of inclusion, and then proactive efforts to really develop the talents of all of your staff, we don't get these things right, we're still gonna be having these conversations a decade from now. 
And diversity is just going to be a very expensive box ticking exercise. And what role can investment play in tackling inequality? Yeah, so inequality is a big word because we've got um, you know, inequality within the company structure, but then we've got inequality as it kind of exists in, in society more generally. And, you know, of course the latter is a, is, a, is a tougher nut to crack, but we believe that by leveling the playing field within the work environment that we can have a very positive impact on, you know, on society at large. And both investors and regulators have a role to play. You know, we'll, I'll start with an obvious, you know, the regulators. Um, have uh, invoked, um, you know, both hard and soft laws, really mostly aimed at gender diversity uh, on corporate boards. And so we have quotas or these, uh, you know, kind of comply and explain regimes that, you know, frankly have resulted in, um, you know, kind of mixed success. On the one hand, um, yes, it is true that they have actually uh, increased um, the number of women on boards, but on the other hand, there's really not been any meaningful trickle down effect um, for uh, women within organizations. You know, we don't see pay gaps um, uh, reducing meaningfully. We don't see the kind of increase in number of executives that we, that we might like to see. Um, these initiatives historically have by and large been aimed at, at gender representation. And so, you know, for example, in the latest Parker review of the FTSE 100, we see that there's still, you know, quite a glaring absence of minority representation on boards. But we are big fans of uh, investor-led initiatives, with voting and engagement really being at the top of that list, as these are the real, you know, levers for impact um, within our business. And so, pushing for voluntary disclosure of gender and race statistics, encouraging companies to tie diversity goals to compensation. You know, these are both two good examples of current investor initiatives that we think are really helping to, you know, to, to turn the needle uh, on this issue. Um, there's also a real role for these collective action groups like the 30% Club. You know, these allow investors to come together as a coalition and approach companies really as a single voice and lobby for change. Um, I would say generally amongst the investor-led initiatives, we think the ones that have the best chance for success are those that are broadly supported, um, those that are specific and actionable, very outcome-oriented, you know, that companies can actually um, uh, target and then, and then do. And then finally, you know, deep, and by deep, I mean that they go beyond the, the upper echelon of companies, that they really uh, look to target um, diversity, both uh, in gender and race and in other uh, dimensions throughout the organization, not just that top layer. So I think finally, when we talk about what can investors do, I think we can all listen to the very powerful signaling effect of consumer choice. And this is also investor led, but it's very much from the bottom up. And so we currently see investors by the thousands really expressing their desire to invest in funds um, that seek out diverse companies um, because they believe that they represent both the potential for societal gains, but also uh, financial gains. And I think that that's a very important voice in the industry as well. 
Thank you. And um, I mean, what do you think the implications on diversity are arising from COVID-19 and, and some of the main opportunities and, and challenges that may come from it? I think, no, I I think that asked. there are both opportunities and challenges on that. Catherine, do you want to start? No, no, no please go ahead. Um, you know, well, let's start with the challenges. I think that the biggest challenge is that while, you know, COVID has really forced firms to accept and adopt a remote and flexible working environment. But at the same time, it's also kind of convoluting working from home and flexibility in what might be a business as usual environment with navigating a global pandemic. So, uh, you know, we need to acknowledge that crises will tend to reinforce traditional, you know, gender roles. So we need to be really mindful that while we're trying to um, compartmentalize embracing, you know, remote and flexible working as a means to improving diversity, and, and I can explain that a little bit more, and employee engagement while addressing the unique complexities, I think that, and the real challenges that the pandemic has also imposed on top of it. So. Um, you know, either way, I think when it comes to, to remote working, some of the things that, that need to be navigated are that you're likely to have employees who can easily transition to a remote environment. You have those who can, but need to maybe build in greater flexibility to accommodate it. And those will struggle because it's just, you know, they don't have the right environment that's conducive to it. Either young children, you know, Wi-Fi issues, roommates, um, so all of a sudden, I think there's a bit of an expectation that people's home environments become a professional setting, um, similar to an office, you know, with a backdrop that's perfect for Zoom calls. Um, but that's just not, you know, practical in many circumstances. And, and so I think, you know, even if you can accommodate a range of setups, creating cohesion can be really challenging when the team is dispersed and, and working different hours, especially if they're uh, perception begins to grow that some are not working as hard as others. So understanding, you know, true resource needs um, and requirements when managers can't see, you know, the workload um, and employees may feel the pressure to hide other demands that they may have to juggle uh, when they can't disappear to the office, you know, makes it really difficult for, for management to plan effectively. And, and I guess it, from a challenge perspective, in short, it's hard to do a one size fits all, um, which makes it really unwieldy for management on, on one hand, and if not handled properly, perceived as unfair by employees. Yeah, and if I could just interject, I do think it's important to acknowledge that many of these challenges that Heidi just described really tend to affect women and workers of color more acutely. So pre-COVID, women we're already taking on more unpaid labor than men, you know, primarily from childcare, but from elder care and, and frankly, all other types of unpaid work. People of color um, have been disproportionately represented in service industries um, with fewer worker benefits. So the pandemic has simply exacerbated these inequalities that have been with us for a long time. And, you know, I think at this point, going back to the status quo, you know, we we hear this, um, you know, build back and the and the mantra for build back better, um, you know, should mean that we don't want to just simply uh, revert to what we had before. You know, COVID has really laid bare the risks that are inherent in our system, and at this moment, we have an opportunity to change course um, to try and better future-proof our economy. Yeah, and there, and there are a lot of opportunities. So, so not to dwell too much on the, on the challenges, I think the opportunities are 
Um, you know, number one, it, it expands your ability to build and maintain a diverse workforce. You're not as location dependent anymore. Um, you can access, you know, access a wider set of potential candidates. Maybe um, having them relocate is no longer a requirement. Um, I think you can achieve a lot, lot greater loyalty to the company and company commitment by tailoring to in individual needs, which in turn, I think, can increase productivity and, and effort on the part of, of your staff. Um, it potentially lowers costs, so you you know less workspace, hiring and locations with a lower cost of living. Uh, although I'll, I'll caveat that by saying that that would require, in my opinion, continuous salary assessment. So you're avoiding increasing uh, the gender pay gap while recognizing the cost of living you know should be factored a uh, factor considered into compensation. Um, lower travel and entertainment expenses. Uh, I think relatedly as someone who is you know, deeply committed to environmental, social uh, and governance issues, this has really opened our eyes to the fact that we can get work done without traveling for the most part. And, and that's you know, provided a working example of our ability to, to start to decouple work from carbon emissions. Um, and I, I think the, the final one in terms of, I think opportunity is that, um, you know, this experience, I think, in many ways has allowed us to see each other as humans. Um, you know, it's brought a certain personalization to the workplace. You know, we see you at home, you see us at home. Uh, I think that's really good for building trust. You know, we interact with each other in a way that is somewhat vulnerable and traditionally outside of our work personas. So, uh, you know, you can engage with team members, not as CEO, CFO, department head, risk manager, salesperson, but as people. Um, as humans, you know, navigating issues just like you are. And I think that could be really great for breaking barriers and reinforcing a feeling of, of being in this together. Great, thank you both. And Diana, I'm interested, um, obviously having a global role yourself on how you think engagement on ethnicity has been different globally. We do have a global approach um, and it's holistic and rigorous, but it also is tailored to the specific context of the country and each company. Um, we serve clients around the world and the awakening around the world that George Floyd has sparked shows that this is a global issue. And we begin by acknowledging our own shortfalls. We, our industry to date, we have not done enough, but we are working uh, to change things by representing our investor clients and acting as allies in closing inequities. We seek to scale and accelerate change by engaging companies directly and issuing voting recommendations for their uh, directors. And so for example, on voting in the US, we will vote against the nominating and governance chair or the lead independent director if um, there's a less than 40% total diversity in 2021, and that includes uh, racial and ethnic diversity. Um, and we specifically ask for consideration of first time diverse candidates. In the UK, we have the Parker framework, this has been explained and we will be voting. There are lots of FTSE uh, companies below the, the targets there. Um, another global element of our approach is that it is holistic. We address the entire footprint of the company's impacts and the levers that the company can exert. This would include its workforce, products and services, suppliers, communities, the trade associations through which it works and the public policy impacted uh, activities that it pursues. Everything is on the table. Um, sector specificity also matters. So some product inspector specific examples um, from the US, for example, are home builders, 
we scrutinize them carefully for potentially inadvertent perpetuation of housing bias. In telco and media, we want to see that they're increasing speed to poor communities for online education. We want to see that they're providing free quality educational content. The, the disaster in education and early education and primary school education has hit minorities um, and diverse people's hardest. And it's, it, it is yawning as we speak and that needs to be addressed. Um, we are encouraging companies to encourage their um, uh, employees to vote, to get them out there. Um, and we, we seek to ensure that there's no de stereotypical dis depictions and advertising. There's a lot of AI algorithms that encourage bias. There's so much more that if you look at it from a top-down sector-specific perspective that we are um, working to um, address. Um, we also have been seeing a lot of statements. Um, these statements are great, good start, but we're now looking increasingly for data plans and we're closely monitoring them, uh, both the quantitative and the qualitative progress. We're holding directors and companies to account. Transparency is good, greater visibility is good, and we are we are very much uh, pursuing these initiatives. And how do you think that ethnicity data and reporting can, can really help? Well, firstly, what data is collected matters and language matters. Um, and uh, it is important, it, it takes on a life of its own. When data is transparent, it takes on a life of its own. But it starts with, um, um, we are here divided by a common language. Um, so US persons for the most part are unfamiliar with BAME technology. In the US we use terms like African-Americans, Latinx, Native Americans, um, and specify various different Asian and South Asian groups, for example, Pacific Islanders. Um, and words matter here and in the US and uh, the, the, the words are largely interchangeable with minorities, minority populations, smaller segments of the population. But we have a global approach and recognize that in parts of Latin America, Asia, Africa, Middle East, the disadvantaged can in fact be the majorities. Um, so we, we, our approach begins by asking companies to start by defining the key groups in the company context by key market and collecting data appropriately. And to the point earlier, we do encourage companies to look at intersectionalities. Yes, black women tend to have greater challenges than white women. It is very important to look holistically when evaluating the data and the strategy. Um, we, we also have the privilege of looking across the world for best practices. And here in the UK, the UK gender par pay parity reporting requirements are not universal. However, through the private sector as investors, again, very mindfully, we are asking companies, for example, in the States, to provide UK style reports for the entire global workforce and by key country. Um, and we also ask companies to provide meaningful race um, and ethnicity pay gap data in that spirit. So yes, it's difficult to collect this data. We know that some countries don't allow this, but it is still possible to ask employees to provide um, data that will be anonymized to opt in in a GDPR compliant manner. And it is possible to analyze that data and share it in a very, very meaningful way. We do ask companies to place data within the context of strategy and to make, it, to make their stories very, very authentic. Um, one of the things about data is that people, employees, recruits, 
can see right through it. If it's not authentic, if it's not real, if it's not embedded within a strategy, um, it, it will not serve the purpose the company wants. In the interest of time, I will stop here, but I'm, I'm very, very happy to take questions on this. Thanks, Diana, that's very informative. And um, Jess, uh, as you're a coach, I'm interested to hear what you're seeing in the financial services market around diversity and what the executive coaching consultancy are doing at the moment to, to support this. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing that, you know, it's clear that things need to change. You know, the statistic that only 1% of senior management um, are from a black minority ethnic background compared with 13% in the UK and in London, 40%, you know, as a financial hub of the UK in London, you've got 40% black and minority ethnic representation and only 1% in senior management. So it's definitely true that things need to change. Um, and what we're seeing increasingly um, is that there are more programs designed um, to really accelerate and to and to support um, talent from minority backgrounds. And definitely at ECC, there's a commitment to really um, encourage this change. So where perhaps um, Previously with ECC, we've done more um, programs to accelerate female talent increasingly where um, clients are asking us to look at programs to accelerate talent um, from minority backgrounds. And, you know, ECC as an organization is really keen to support this because, you know, we have the tools to do this, we have the contacts and the relationships to do this. So we're keen to, to really make this happen. Fantastic. And um, what are the benefits do you think of having more diverse coaches? Well, I think, you know, if we're, um, if companies are saying that they have a commitment to um, um, creating equity and opportunities for people, for, the, for, for those from minority backgrounds, it's important that that um, equity and that diversity, I believe, is seen in the companies and the suppliers and the partners that they choose to work with. Um, and having more diverse coaches um, really helps to bring more diverse perspectives. Um, you know, it's, it's important that to bring those diverse perspectives in if you want to make, you know, a more diverse um, workforce and, and diverse coaches can really facilitate this. And I think it's also important, you know, if you're um, providing coaching for senior talent who are from diverse backgrounds, that that senior talent do see themselves. Um, because in order for them to feel like the person that they're working with can understand some of their challenges, can bring real empathy, I think having some diversity is really important. And also it helps to break down barriers because, you know, in coaching, it's about helping people to be truly vulnerable in service of their development and of their career progression. Um, and they need to feel safe to be able to do this. And I think having um, diverse coaches really does facilitate this. And how can coaches of all ethnicities help to navigate the move to greater diversity and equity? I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question, actually, because, you know, it's, it's not just the job of diverse coaches um, or coaches from diverse backgrounds. It's the job of all coaches, actually, to, to, to help this move to greater diversity. And I mean, I think there are, I'd say there are three main ways, as I see it. Um, and the first and foremost is that it's really important that um, all coaches um, educate themselves to really understand the structural inequalities that exist, because that will really inform the questions that they ask in their coaching and the way that they coach as well. And I think secondly, it's really important to elevate the voices 
of diverse coaches and coaching organizations need to look at becoming more inclusive um, really opening up to um, letting other voices in to hear other voices to enable that real um, di those different ways of looking at things the different perspectives to really come to the fore which will you know which benefits everybody and I think um, finally, perhaps most importantly, I think coaches need to now be prepared to call out discriminatory behaviour and call out when they see inequalities are taking place or um, uh, the behaviour is creating inequalities in the workplace of the senior leaders that they might be working with. Um, because by calling that out, that's when we can really start to affect change. Thanks, Jess. And um, Elham, we've talked a lot about initiatives such as Investment 2020 and 110,000 Black interns. I'm very interested to hear how migrant leaders can help to pipeline talent and encourage greater diversity within our corporate environments. Thank you, Georgina. Um, really, my key message, particularly to corporates, would be that when you look at uh, corporate inclusion and diversity, from the perspective of social equality, don't be afraid to widen the talent pool. Um, to give you a bit of context, um, I myself have spent 25 years as a finance director and transformation director in GE, News Corp and Ernest & Young. But life hasn't always been like this. Um, when I was 18 years old, I, I was just a young migrant in the UK uh, with all the typical challenges of uh, young migrants with no visa, uh, family breakup, no connections, no money. And uh, I camped outside Birmingham City Council for three days until uh, they managed to help me and count me as a home student so I could go to study at university. And the rest was history. But when I looked uh, at the Parker Review in 2017, um, looking at the ethnic diversity of UK boardrooms, only 2% of the directors in FTSE 100 companies were citizens of color. And when I looked at that data more deeply, only 1.3% were migrants and almost all of those were privately educated, which tells you something about um, social uh, exclusion. So really the key message for me at that point was uh, we must be careful because exactly those people who are at risk of being excluded are those who have gone through disadvantages and challenges and have shown resilience, grit, and the sort of capabilities that corporates need in order to really succeed. So for me, migrant leaders emerged from my story there. Um, and uh, I launched Migrant Leaders as really a direct response to some of the recommendations of the Parker Review in 2017. And uh, where we are today, um, we uh, have a, a comprehensive development program uh, for first and second generation migrants, uh, as well as all disadvantaged young people between the age of 16 and 25. Um, I've uh, recruited more than 500 senior mentors from 95 FTSE 100 and leading firms. And we've also partnered with uh, fantastic corporate partners, including Anglo-American, Cantor and Smith and & Nephew. 
So we are delivering uh, virtual internships and uh, experiences and opportunities that these disadvantaged young people otherwise wouldn't have had. Um, and the key power of that really is that we're catching the talent pool young and giving them the insights and experiences and support they need so that they can really succeed in their corporate um, careers later on. And importantly, when their education ends and they enter the corporate environment, they are um, really as ready as they can be to hit the ground running and progress rapidly in the corporates. Um, on the other hand, a lot of the things that the panel have talked about, uh, I think Heidi talked about the need for the right culture in the corporates, um, and uh, others talked about uh, culture, about inclusion, about attitudes, systems, progression, all of those things are needed in the corporates so that uh, these young talent pool can feel supported and can actually succeed in the corporates. Thank you, Alham. And um, I mean, obviously, we're great supporters of migrant leaders, which is uh, why we're partnering with you. But um, but thank you very much for that. And now over to Sophia. I think we're going to open up some questions to kick things off. Uh, Darren, a question for you. Uh, we know that white males often don't feel included in conversations around DNI. How can we encourage others to lean in? Uh, good question. So I think to me, it's really about um, changing the culture, which may be unintentionally exclusive, right? So I think we should focus on the mutual self-interest, not blame. I think sometimes it, it turns into a kind of blame game, um, particularly around white men. Um, they, they shouldn't be actually seen as, as part of the problem, but part of the solution. It's definitely not um, a diverse community versus white men, it, it should never be, be seen as that. And I think sometimes that positioning um, sort of discourages people to um, play their part. Um, there needs to really be a focus on engagement and partnership um, as well. And um, I think, you know, it, it does need to start with a kind of shift in mindset within organizations. People are also um, motivated by what benefits them. So, uh, organizations should look to tie diversity efforts with individual goals, um, you know, basically to see results. Um, and, you know, if they kind of link it to pay and promotion with other rewards integrated, then um, I'm sure uh, people will definitely be leaning in and we are more likely to achieve the goals. Um, I think lastly, um, it's, it's really the softer side of things as well. So, you know, we've got to, I always use the word courageous, so we've got to be courageous in in discussing these issues as well. Um, you know, a misstep in the right direction is better than being short-footed and, and silent about these issues. Um, I think don't let the fear of a misstep, you know, hold you back from full engagement on the topic of race. I think sometimes, you know, there, there is a, unfortunately a council culture out there sometimes um, where, you know, someone says something wrong, um, maybe in the wrong context. So I, I don't know if, you know, I'll say Wells Fargo, I think that's a, something that people know the CEO had made a comment about not being able to find black talent um, from his perspective from where he sat we can argue whether he should know or not but from his perspective he says something which he generally thought was correct and um, the backlash he received if you're him would you ever talk about this problem again rather than engaging um, someone and just educating them um, because maybe they don't know something so I think um, that council culture is an issue so it's really important to have full 
engagement, as long as it's respectful, it's candid and honest conversations, um, then that's good. Also, um, I think Jessica mentioned it, um, um, educate yourself, you know, um, and that's not just um, white people educate themselves around black people and LGBTQ and, and gender, it's everyone educating themselves about everyone. <laughs> um, and also something that's often missed, the, the kind of uh, compounding effects of intersectional identities as well. Um, and then, you know, for me, you know, inclusion does mean inclusion. Like I keep, we keep talking about that today, um, but there should be accountability for change. And again, this goes back to encouraging others to lean in. If there's accountability for it, um, it's likely to happen. You know, diversity is just simply the difference, but inclusion still remains the biggest opportunity. And I think, you know, firms just need to create the conditions for everyone um, to contribute to finding solutions around race and inequality. Thanks very much, Darren. Um, Heidi and Catherine, it would be great to get your input on the next question. Um, what does a culture of inclusion look like? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead, Heidi. Catherine, you start on this one. Sure, sure. I'll kick it off by um, just saying that the, you know, that the inclusive culture that we're describing is one that not just welcomes, but requires diversity of thought. Now that's a, that seems like a very obvious thing to say, but again, if we go back to kind of what is status quo at many companies, especially among senior leadership, you know, there, there really does seem to be this palpable desire to just maintain things as is, you know, don't make waves, always agree with management. You know, the whole point of diversity is to bring in people who are going to present a different perspective that might be, you know, orthogonal to the, the existing beliefs in a company. And so I saw another question come up um, as, you know, kind of in the scroll just now also that's asking about, well, you know, how can we take diversity beyond um, what people look like? So beyond race, beyond gender, you know, and I think that we do uh, need to remember that the reason that we're talking about including a whole variety of people is because of this heterogeneous perspective that we believe forms the, you know, the sort of origin story of the business case for diversity. So I, I think I speak for everyone on the panel when we say we're not limiting this to gender or to race, but to, um, you know, a more complete view of the of society at large. And so when we talk about this inclusive culture, you know, we're talking about um, premeditated diversity and inclusion initiatives on the part of management, but that really trickle down through the organization, premeditated when forming teams, premeditated when asking uh, uh, employees to kind of come out of their traditional comfort zones. You know, all of this is what really um, brings diverse thought to the fore, but it absolutely has to be um, sparked by a genuine desire on the part of leadership to have that opinion that may be uncomfortable. Can I, can I um, try and also answer that question uh, around, um, I think it was around, uh, what was it? Sorry, excuse me. It was around the visual uh, criteria. So uh, just, just quickly to add to that, I would say um, there's an analogy around the house being on fire um, and putting out that house. And uh, I would say, yeah, the house is on fire. And if you put out this fire, you stop contagion. 
across the board, across other dimensions of diversity. And if you look at some of the, the, the tools that have been recommended to reduce bias, it benefits a lot of dimensions of diversity. So blind CVs, for example, um, if you haven't got a university degree, a blind CV, looking at just your experience gives you an opportunity to get in front of someone and discuss issues. So, you know, for me, um, I think, you know, normally when I hear this question, it's more, it's, it's like a what aboutism. What about, you know, if you want to focus on black, what about Hispanic? What about Asian? And I um, always say, you know, I, I always use that house analogy, but I also say you've got skin cancer, you've got breast cancer, you know, <laughs> you're focusing on, on one, um, but hopefully it benefits the others. And it doesn't mean one is necessarily more important than another. It just means that you have to deal with a particular problem, but you're hoping that that work is going to make it better for everyone. That, that's what you're hoping. Um, and if it doesn't, then obviously you, you refocus on, on some of the other areas as well. Thank you, Darren and Catherine. Um, Diana, a question for you. As a global firm such as Federated Hermes, how do you expect to gather data on social factors in countries where such a practice is banned by law, such as France? Yeah, it's possible to do it if you ask employees to opt in voluntarily for specific purposes. Um, and it's possible to ask third parties um, to do this and, and anonymize the data and keep the servers in Europe. It's, it's very, very possible to do GDPR compliant um, employee surveys, um, surveys of business partners who have a perspective on the company and the culture. Um, it is in, in my past life, um, I um, collected these sorts of surveys. And in fact, it's possible to do it to an academic level of rigor. Um, academic studies can be based on these studies, um, including in some of the most um, academically rigorous statistical analyses. Thanks, Diana. Yeah. Jess, a question for you. Um, how do you think we can retain employees throughout the entire life cycle of their company? Thanks, Sophia. I mean, I think um, in terms of if you're talking about for example, the, the, the initiatives you've spoken about, so for example, the, um, you know, the 100 black interns and initiatives like that to, to get employees that Darren, Darren spoke about, I think, to get employees on board. I think in terms of retaining them, it can't just stop uh, bringing those people in. I mean, I liked what um, Darren was saying about, um, did you say it was it was a pipe? It was, it was, I think you said it was something like a pipe and there were the, the different kinks in the pipe. And, and um, I think it's really important to, you know, once you've retained people, is actually to to continue to support them with their with mentoring, making sure that there is mentoring available to them, giving them opportunities to network widely in the organisation as well. I think it's important to build those networks within organise um, within the organisation. I think sponsorship is absolutely key as well to. Um, give the, um, these young people that come on board um, the opportunity to um, have conversation and showcase their talents to people higher up in the organization, um, but as a, as a means to you know, have doors open for them. And perhaps um, most importantly as well, to make sure that they have a good coaching support um, because that really does um, support them to be able to bring their, bring their A game to work. Thanks very much, Jess. Um, Elham, a question specifically on um, the Migrant Leaders Programme. What kind of industries or careers have the students at Migrant Leaders gone into and are there any success stories you can share? 
Absolutely. Um, three years um, after the launch of Migrant Leaders, I that's one of the best aspects of my job is um, hearing about uh, the successes stories. Um, uh, first of all, the 500 or so uh, mentors that I've recruited from the 95 large corporates, each of them come from different sectors and different technical backgrounds. So very, we very carefully match the sector and, uh, and technical background of the mentor to the development needs and aspirations of the individual mentees. Um, there are very many success stories. Um, one that particularly comes to mind is one of my own direct mentees, Luke, who I, had, I have been mentoring for um, uh, more than three years. Um, he is a uh, second generation migrant, Afro-Caribbean family, uh, grew up with multiple siblings in a tough part of London and uh, very clearly capable, but um, didn't quite realize how talented he is himself. Uh, so throughout those three, four years, my job I thought as his mentor was to, to really um, uh, push him to fulfill his potential. He went on to study accountancy and finance and through um, some coaching over a couple of weekends through his own talent and hard work, managed to get an internship, summer internship at EY and he's just this September, I'm proud to say, he's started his uh, graduate uh, role at EY. Um, EY is great. Um, obviously, I've spent 10 years there as a senior manager, um, but uh, Luke is not typical of uh, recruits into big financial services firms. I think Luke will be a fantastic role model. He will progress at EY and in that sector and importantly, lots of other young people like Luke will see him as a relatable role model uh, at EY. So he will do a lot more good in the future. Thanks, Elhama, a good success story there. Um, and in the essence of time, this potentially might be the, the last question uh, directed for you, Heidi. Um, what can leaders do to ensure that DNI doesn't fall by the wayside during COVID? Uh, I would say, in short, you know, mitigate the challenges and try to, to leverage the opportunities that we talked about. Um, you know, I think that kind of seems to line up in, in a few different categories. You know, first, lead, uh, I would say, lead with empathy and trust. Um, you know, make, make flexible working the norm. Uh, I think, as I, you know, as I said before, you know, COVID is sort of forcing a blurring of the lines between what might otherwise be a manageable remote working uh, arrangement and the particular challenges that are imposed by the pandemic. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that people have different experiences, some with greater or fewer limitations and try as best as possible to create an environment in which employees can to some degree set their own boundaries, obviously within, within reason. Um, when possible, ask employees to be really specific about what they need. So not just more flexibility, but um, for example, one might need to take care of her kids from eight to 10 and another might need to be on kid, you know, dinner duty starting at five and just being aware of those, um, of those needs and being able to accommodate them and trust that people are going to do the right thing, I think will go a long way. Um, and you know, remembering that flexibility by definition takes, I think, different forms for, for everyone. Um, I think strengthening and uh, strengthening communication and interaction with staff is very, very critical, especially when it is remote. That probably requires a little more structure. So, um, structuring time to have virtual check-ins with individuals and as teams. Um, you know, building ways to create team bonding virtually. So, not making those check-ins always about where is this project and 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 
um, you know, what next you know, effort you're going to be focusing on, but setting expectations and really trusting your team uh, to do the right thing, giving them the benefit of the doubt would be sort of one category. Um, I would say purposefully lean in on diversity. So use this opportunity to make um, make great, you know, greater diversity profile within the organization, leveraging some of the things I talked about, like looking outside of um, your, your state, your city, uh, you know, looking for different types of profiles, really making sure that employees respect uh, one another, that they view inclusion in the way that Catherine and Darren talked about it as non-negotiables. Um, you know, making sure that that's experienced in your company every day and no one can model it better than the leader. So I think that's super important. Um, ensuring that the other sort of uh, softer things like reward, succession, promotion, you know, opportunities reflect that and address unconscious bias. And then I have, finally, I would say maybe you really focus on using this opportunity to strengthen the fabric of the firm. Uh, ensure teams are resourced adequately to provide the necessary coverage so people aren't burning the candle at both ends. Um, you know, have a robust onboarding program for, for new employees. You know, the first three months of a new hire are probably the most critical. Um, so organizing, you know, training, buddy systems, sponsorship, mentoring, uh, as Elham was talking about, um, creating, you know, learning opportunities. There, there's a lot of benefit to the remote. There's a lot of great training and educational opportunities besides, you know, uh, webcasts like this, where you know employees can build on their skill set during this time, and encouraging and promoting that, um, and then finally, you know, really promoting again networking, mentorship, and sponsorship, but having a very strong focus on communication and transparency, and making sure that you're really continuing to check in with people, even though it's not as easy to do as when you just happen to bump into each other in the hallways. So. Um, so, I, so those would be kind of the, the, the few things that I would really focus on is leading with uh, empathy and trust, really purposefully leading in on diversity and using this opportunity to strengthen the fabric of the firm and think about what you really want to achieve and are there different ways to get there um, that may, you may not have thought of before that are now opportunities. Thanks very much, Heidi. I'll, I'll pick up, uh, I think, uh, as Sophia says, in the interest of time, um, but just with a, a sort of a brief summary of our conversation, I, I feel um, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, we've had an incredibly comprehensive discussion around some of the best ways to overcome the kinks in the hose um, so that we can essentially work towards a better future where inclusion is made a reality and to prevent us falling into the trap of making this a numbers game. We've discussed ways of pipelining talent, such as Investment 2020, 100 Black interns, 10,000 Black interns, um, and working with organizations such as migrant leaders, um, or even looking for talent in other industries who have better diversity profiles. It's also important to look at different ways that we can retain employees throughout the entire life cycle of their company. We've talked through some practical strategies around how organizations can create a culture of inclusivity, which will lead to better retention of diverse talent. Organizations can look to, uh, to other organizations such as Radiant ESG to help them implement DNI practices or integrate ESG, or to uh, the executive coaching consultancy who can help to coach individuals um, and help them to navigate corporate environments which in turn will lead to more retention and more ethnic diversity in leadership positions.
It's clear that the asset management industry has the ability to incorporate racial equity into investment activities, policies and practices, and it's time for racial justice to take the stage in ESG strategy. The last few months has created real momentum for change, and it's important that this isn't lost. There's a continual need to address the issues and collaborate on the solutions for change so that we can reshape our financial services systems for good. As Justin Onokusi from Elgin said, it's time to be colour brave and use our voices and actions to create a level playing field for all. This is not about division. It's not about black versus white. It's about everyone versus racism. And that should unite us all. Thank you all for attending and a great thanks to our speakers who've contributed on our panel today.